What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Good Trouble podcast, where we have curated conversations for racial and economic justice here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. My name is Reggie Williams, one of your co-hosts here for Good Trouble. I'm here with my esteemed co-host, Mr. Gregory Ball. Greg, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. With an introduction like that, I can't complain. You make me sound way more exalted than I actually am, you know, <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. How are you feeling, my friend? It's been a while since we have done this. It's been a minute. You know, I'm, I know King Boston's been busy. We've been busy here at Mass Budget. I'm excited for today's conversation and to welcome some some new friends and some some old ones into the conversation. I'm trying to, uh, we, we're going to bring our new friends on and our old friends as well, but I'm trying to decide whether I should sneak a piece of information in here, depending mm-hmm. on when we're going to drop this. What's the preview? We, if we're going to drop this next week, we can probably do this. So I can announce here that um, King Boston is changing its name. What? Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> we are changing our name to Embrace Boston. Wow. This will be the first time that many people will hear this. So we um, now I definitely have to make sure this comes out after, after the name change. But yes, we are going to be changing our name to Embrace Boston. And it's, you know... We're going to explain in detail kind of the reasoning behind it, but it really, really simply boils down to that we're coming to the end of one chapter in our our journey as an organization and about to embark on a larger one. And, you know, the embrace, the actual memorial that will be on uh, Boston Common is is something that we we have as a piece of pride for us as an organization. And so we thought to take on that name would just make sense um, as we're going on. And it really speaks to our overall mission. And then also, you know, as we're we're going forward, there's a little piece of information that that is going to be coming out. I've got all types of news for you guys today. I see. Um, <laughs> another piece of information that's coming out is our one of our next piece, uh, next chapter is the creation of the Embrace Center. Hmm. So we're actually working with HYM and uh, My City at Peace and a number of uh, other partners to be um, to help develop. Um, parcel three, which is directly across from um, from Boston Police Headquarters, and we're actually getting a uh, a substantial piece of that space to create a cultural center. And as we're naming the cultural center, we wanted to name it the Embrace Center. Um, you know, obviously there's a King Center in Atlanta. We didn't want to have any um, confusion with that. And then yeah. also the King family are, are incredible shepherds of the of the King legacy, and is is really theirs to hold. And we're fortunate that they we're willing to be able to share it with us as we could, so we could get our project done as a part of getting our project done. So we're excited about that. We're excited about this new, uh, new space and place that, that we're, we're leading into. And I'm trying to think of what else, Just, you know, embrace center, the name change, you know, I'm getting a new email address. Okay. It's funny. Cause I was going to refer to you as King ball. Cause you always have your biggie painting in the back and biggie's crown is always on you mm-hmm. like a king so well you can still oh, call me so, king ball like we yeah. don't you know that doesn't change <laughs> my my royalty does not switch with the organization's name keep that in there that's no problem i just noticed that that's really dope that's right some dynasties are forever exactly. yes exactly and, and everybody thinks i did that on purpose it absolutely was by accident but once i kept once i saw it i kept it um but we also have just gotten a little bit of our uh our guests but reggie give us a, the introduction let's introduce our, our guests to the people we're rolling right into the conversation today but we're very excited to have mass budget and policy centers president marie francis rivera back with us today marie francis how you doing 
I'm great. Same name, same organization name. <laughs> Doing big things though. So mass budget here. Amen. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you so much. And then also we have a new friend, Joel Rivera, the political director for the Fair Share for Massachusetts campaign here with us today. Joel, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. Appreciate the invitation. All right. So let's dive right in. Well, can you tell us a little bit, can you tell listeners a little bit about you, your background and a little bit about the campaign efforts and what's going on, what's going on in the Commonwealth? For sure. Uh, absolutely. So thank you again for having me uh, today. Super excited to to chat with y'all and chop it up. Um, so I've been in Boston for about 10 years now. Uh, I went to school here and did a lot of um, on-campus and off-campus organizing. Uh, did some work with uh, Mira for a while. Shout out to Mira. A Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, um, immigrant rights organization based in Boston. Uh, did some work with them for about five years and uh, transitioned over to over to Fair Share in April. Uh, and it's been a crazy few months, but uh, it's been awesome. Yeah, so I'm the political director of managing um, the political relationships on the campaign at at all levels of of government and. You know, like any campaign, doing doing some field work, doing like you know, working with the comms team. Um, you know, every every event that we do is a, a little bit of political, a little bit of field, a little bit of comms and digital. Uh, but it's been great, man. It's a it's a wonderful campaign to work on with a lot of really great people, both at campaign staff and also at the the coalition level. All the wonderful partners we get to work with, including Mass Budget and a bunch of other really great organizations. That's great. And thank you. And for those who don't know, the Fair Share campaign is something that is going to be on this November's ballot. You might have received your, your at-home mail-in ballots already. Early voting has started here in the Commonwealth, or it will be starting shortly, probably by the time this episode is aired. Can we right. hear a little bit more about what the Fair Share Amendment is and how folks can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Fair Share Amendment is a, a constitutional amendment. Um, that would create a 4% income tax um, on income earned over a million dollars. So it would only affect like very, very, really, really rich people who are making over a million dollars in income in a single year. And then it's only 4% income, uh, 4% tax on the income over a million dollars. So it doesn't kick in until that million and first dollar. Uh, by our estimates, it would uh, raise $2 billion a year, every year, like forever, which is amazing. Uh, that would be used for education and transportation, which are two things that impact everybody, including the very rich. So uh, for us, it's a win-win. Okay, so the first question that jumps into my mind is I think about um, the misinterpretation that could be that could that could be so rampant when I hear that, you know, if you're over a million, you you're getting taxed at a different rate. So you talked about the income piece of it, but right now we're at a place where, you know, there's properties in, in Dorchester and Roxbury that traditionally have not been that high value that have actually moved, moved to a place where they're actually touching a million dollars in value. Is, it, is, is the amendment something that'll, that'll affect folks like that? Or is it is strictly for like income or clear that part up for me a little bit? Cause I'm sure there's, that's a little yeah. fuzzy for some folks. For sure. That's a super common question. We know that like home ownership is is a way that most Americans accumulate wealth over time, but it actually won't impact most of us. So um, just last year in 2021, less than 900 of over 100,000 home sales uh, put people over that $1 million and plus one uh, threshold. So 
similar to how we say this impacts less than less than one percent of of Massachusetts residents, this issue of home sales only impacts less than one percent of home sales um, because of the way things work. Even though those homes have increased value, which is great for the people who have been there for a long time, um, when you sell it as your primary home, even as a one-time like windfall, you have deductions for like if you're you're married, that's up to five hundred thousand dollars. You can deduct the cost of any renovations to the home, and then what you're left with is a number much smaller than a million dollars. If that's what the home is worth, um, you add your income to that, and you're probably still well below one million dollars in income. So, um, it actually won't impact most of us um, when it comes to that home ownership question. But we have seen definitely the opposition trying to kind of mislead people and and you know punishing the one time billionaire one time millionaires as they say. Uh, but when you look at the facts, it's actually not true. So then, and well, let's talk about the the not the one-time millionaires, but the usual millionaires, the people who stay above that line. Um, you know, one of the things that that we've seen in political discourse over for many, many years, and it's always been a trick. We always talk about the trickle down, and you know, there's a group of people if they get it, then they'll pass it on to everyone else, and those kinds of things. Um, but what we have seen happened um, post-COVID is we've seen a lot of people um, move and shift where they are in the country. You know, we've, we've seen large groups of people move from Newark, um, New York, I'm about to say Newark, uh, New York, and head to Texas because there's no income tax. And, and California has seen a, a bit of a brain and, and talent drain as well. Is that something that people are concerned about with this amendment? Is that part of like, is that part of the concern that, or that that that's being voiced in terms of the people who are millionaires who truly do find themselves in that space on a regular basis that they're going to leave and thus take even the, they'll take that tax base with them when they go? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I realize I, I'm not going to yeah. I don't need to answer Do you, all the questions. No, so no. Go. But if you want to answer this question, you can feel free to. Okay. Answer this question. All right. I'm happy yeah. to take Are a stab can, at we it. We can tag team. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. For sure. Um, I'll take the first go, and then you could fill in any any blanks that, that I make. That sounds great. Um, so thanks, Greg. That's a that's a great um question. Uh, a lot of people have that concern that like, uh, billionaires are going to flee Massachusetts. What we like research actually shows us something different. Um. Yeah. The, one of our partners released a really great report called the the myth of the the Bay State billionaire flight or something to that effect. Like um, billionaires won't actually leave Massachusetts because this is where that they've built their businesses. This is where their families and their communities are, where their workers are all very integrated in the community. It takes a lot of effort to like pick up your business and move it somewhere else. If you are at a level where you're making a lot of money and you have a lot of employees and you're very um, integrated into the work that that is happening on the ground in one place. So, um, yeah, we actually just have seen that people don't don't really do that in in like large droves. Um, I know that some people in Massachusetts have like moved to New Hampshire or Florida or something to evade income taxes, but income taxes make Massachusetts a great place to live, just like places like California, New York, and that's what the the difference is like this isn't a race to the bottom. This is a race to the top. We're trying to have the best schools, the best roads, the best bridges, the best public transportation, the best universities. Um, and the only way to get there is by having a lot of money to spend as a state on those things, um, which I think is much better. You, the two states I just named, California and New York, have the highest 
income taxes on rich people, and they also have the highest number of rich people living there. Um, and so that's what we're trying to to replicate. Okay. Yeah, My I would just say people, very few people make uh, decisions to move based on taxes, like just to kind of put the point mm -hmm. on it and to just reiterate what Hoel just said, people move um, and stay in places because of the amenities and public services and great transit and great schools. And that's, you know, what we're trying to achieve through the fair share amendment, right? To make those investments. Now, but are we nervous about the, if there's a domino effect in other spaces? So if I have to pay more taxes, if I'm in that, in that millionaire slash billionaire class, am I, if I have to pay more taxes, will that affect like my give my charitable giving or anything like that. Has there been any conversation or, or view around those those things? To my knowledge, there hasn't been any studies that I know of of how increased taxes impact charitable giving, but there might be out there. Actually, I don't know if all you've ever bumped into them. Um, I haven't read any read any myself. Um, my guess is that it would potentially impact to some degree. Um, but if people are not, I mean, the thing is there's, there's tax incentives to, to rich people giving, but where do they often, they, where do they often give, right? They give to hospitals and universities and they, they give to stuff so that they can get their name on a building. Right. But mm -hmm. my thought process is if, if the state's just taking that money and then spending it on education, transportation anyway, you know, hopefully it's still winding up either in a place that's just as good or even better. All right. So instead of your name being on the side of, you know, maybe a, a wing at, you know, that local community college or at one of our uh, state universities, perhaps we could just fully fund these programs ourselves because we've raised the revenue to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And that money, instead of going to like private institutions, will be going to public institutions that impact everybody. Mm -hmm. That we that we know have chronically been underfunded, whether it's early education in our state, whether it's higher education in the state, our crumbling structurally yeah. efficient bridges, there's lots of underfunding. And luckily there are like pretty good formulas in place too to make sure that that money would be distributed in ways that are equitable across the Commonwealth. Well, that actually is a question that I have as well. I'm sorry, Reggie, do you have a question or could I, I keep going? It's, it's not, listen, it's not gonna affect me. I only got like $3, but I just really am fascinated. Well, the investments might, hey, if we, you live in Boston, right? Yes, close if, enough. I know, I know you like to drive, but um, if we have more investments to direct toward the T uh, mm. or expanding transit and making transit more affordable, you know, there are, it wouldn't, the positive, investments and targeted investments would impact you yeah and and that was actually where i was going the the, the positive effect of this being becoming an amendment and or and be being in 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 ingrained in what we're we're doing as a as a commonwealth if when it kicks in where will it help us and in there and are there any safeguards for the money to go into particular spaces that is it going to be you know is it thought like, okay, we're gonna put it mostly into education or any particular area, you know, where where does it go once we have it? 
I mean, keeping on the example of California, I just had to double check, you know, like through Proposition 30, the initial measure, and then the extension of a Proposition 55, California was able to, and this year is on track to raise almost $14.1 billion to go towards these types of essential programs and wow. services. Right. $14.1 billion. California, yeah. it's a different state, different makeup, different coast, but sure. a lot of the same challenges that we're facing here, especially, well, you know what, they don't have the oldest public school system or transit system in the nation because they're not us. So like right. just grounding in reality, we <laughs> have a lot of need. $2 billion in sustainable new revenue for these programs sounds like a win-win to me as well. There we go. Numbers don't lie. Yeah. Um, but in terms of safeguards to make sure that the money goes to education and transportation, number one, the language will be in the Constitution. So it'll say, you know, um, to be directed to public education and transportation. So that's mm -hmm. one thing. And the other thing I say to people is we have to be civically engaged. You know, you have to reach out to your legislators, continue to, uh, you know, be tracking the state budget process. Um, it takes all of us to be um, active citizens in our communities to ensure that, uh, you know, if the fair share amendment, once the fair share amendment passes, that we elevate the funding challenges in our communities and are organized to make sure that, you know, if we need an additional teacher in our schools, or if there's a structurally deficient bridge that you're driving over every day, that you elevate those issues to folks who are representing you and your communities and your families um, up on Beacon Hill. Yeah, I think just to piggyback off what Marie Francis just said, that's we've gotten this question a lot. I think in particular from like black and brown like working class immigrant communities is like, how how can you guarantee that the money's coming here? And I always tell them, like, for as long as I've been an organizer, like everything has always been about every campaign has two goals. One is winning the whatever the goals, whatever the goal is. So in this case, passing the Fair Share Amendment on November 8th. And the second one is building power. Right. We have to be building power in everything that we do because this work and our life is about more than just this campaign. Right. We're we're trying to build a movement. We're trying to build a bench of like strong, educated, organized people uh, that can do not just this, but do other campaigns and not just this, but do stuff outside of legislative work. So absolutely, we're educating and training people in this process and mobilizing them. And hopefully we win, knock on wood, on November 8th. And then the work continues after that, right? We celebrate and then we get back to work because then we have to figure out where we're going to spend all this money. And, and we as activists in like minority communities have to be there and have to be with our people to be like, okay, well, it's great that we have an extra $2 billion a year now that's going to education transportation. I want to make sure it goes to Lawrence and Chelsea and Springfield and Brockton and, and all the places that, that our people live and Boston, of course. So once we get this, this, this sounds great, and I guess I, I guess there's a part of me that reps, represents that the the skepticism um, of, of certain people, but I love the idea of us being able to to kind of elevate folks with minimal effort. It feels like it's it's not that big of a, a ask or a lift, um, and it's not a humongous um, impact even on the people who are who would be, you know, paying the the money in, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's not like you're going to, you know, have to give up a Lamborghini or two in order for, in order for us to be able to get this done. So it sounds like something that just feels like a, a win-win for everyone. How is the, how is the energy 
been in terms of the amendment have as you've been going out and talking to people about it has it been one of those things where people are like you know they're like hell yeah that's a great idea or oh no this is you know what was which one has been the energy that you've been running into on a more on a more regular basis I would definitely say we've we've had like a largely positive response in the doors, which is amazing. Uh, we've been canvassing in this. So this campaign has taken many forms right over the years. There's signature collecting and stuff. But mm -hmm. in this in this stage of the campaign where we've been working as a campaign team since March or April, we've been canvassing since April um, in a lot of places and we're fully staffed up all over the state now. Uh, conversations are largely positive which is like shout out to like our data and field teams on getting good targets and stuff but this issue is really great because it's it's broad it impacts it impacts all of us we're able to bring in folks that aren't traditional allies to our communities right we're able to bring in like some like working class white people we're able to bring in some moderates and some swing voters like there's our there are republicans that are supportive of this measure because all of us are collectively hurting right like we we have been through this life, especially the past few years, um, including the pandemic and seeing um, just how how stark the difference is between the haves and the have nots, the 1% and the 99%. Um, and people have that understanding, even if they don't have a political calculus, um, even if they're not super politically engaged, they understand that like, rich people have a lot way more than they like, know what to do with. Um, they got that money off of like, you know, abusing our wages, like us as workers, as our labor, um, and the environment, right? And they want a little more like equity. So it's been really amazing on the doors to be like, you know, do you think millionaires should pay their fair share in taxes? And they're like, yeah. And you're like, okay, great. We're going to create this little 4% income tax on income over a million dollars. It's not going to impact you uh, in terms of like your wallet, but it is going to impact you in terms of your schools will be better. You, there will be staffed up. You'll have better roads with less potholes. Uh, you know, you'll have better bridges that you cross over every day. And people are really excited about that, uh, which is really great to see. I'd say there's definitely been, we were out first and that was really great for us. Um, the opposition has been on like TV and stuff recently and like trying to, you know, using their scare tactics. And some folks are like, you know, they've seen the commercials. They're like, what about home sales? What about business owners? Uh, you know, do I trust the state house? And we have responses for all that, right? Like both in terms of like the scripts that we have, uh, also like our responses on TV as well. Um, so we beat them, we beat them out. We were on TV, I think for like a month before they were, um, we're responding to their messages and we're just going to keep being in the voters ears until November 8th so that we win because, uh, you know, this is a retention campaign, right? The polling, polling has us up, you know, I, I'm weary of polls as the, like a, the pragmatist that I am, but we have a chance of winning this, which would be amazing. Nobody has tried this in de decades. Uh, we've lost every time we've tried this before, but everyone here on our campaign and and in the coalitions that we work with feels like we we stand a legitimate chance of winning on November eighth, and that's really exciting. Right, 80, 80 labor unions or so have come out in support of fair share. Yeah, 60, something like eighty labor 80. unions is like over two or three hundred organizations. Like mm. 50, over fifty municipalities have passed resolutions in favor of fair share. We're at over we're at almost a hundred businesses in support of fair share. The mm. the Globe's been covering this a lot as like union support, like teachers union support us and like business leaders support them. But then why do we have almost a hundred organizations or almost a hundred businesses that that are supportive of us, right? That their business support is like some chambers of commerce and 
some super rich people like Robert Kraft and, and, and Jim Davis and people like that, um, who are like billionaires who, you know, obviously are going to throw a lot of money at this to try to not get taxed um, at a much fairer rate. And I'll say that um, I've been working on tax policy in Massachusetts for over a decade at this point. Um, And the reason why I I feel like it's such an important lever for equity, I I came to really uh, loving tax policy, I guess. Yeah, I think I love it. Okay. Um, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Love feel, does love feel I strong? Think, I, think it's, I think it's fair to say. It um, only took Marie Francis over 10 years to fall in love with tax policy. I know. No, I fell in love with it when I first met it. Um, it was a love <laughs> at first sight. So I came to it from a place of um, really wanting to move the needle on racial justice uh, and racial mm. justice issues. And I feel very strongly that this is an, uh, a, a real racial justice issue of our times. Like the chronic underfunding that we've seen in communities of color around the state. And, you know, we see that nationally as well. Uh, you know, tax policy is a way to address some of that um, in a way that really uplifts all of our communities really uh in in the long term but just you know i did a lot of work um i went to public schools i after graduating college i worked in public schools as well and i'm originally from new bedford one of the gateway cities diversity in massachusetts and just seeing the level of under funding kids not having access to books uh, overcrowded classrooms, you know, I can go on and on, uh, being able to make bigger investments, um, in education specifically and in transportation, but, um, that's a real racial justice issue for many, many of our communities. You see it here in Boston, um, too, with young people not having access to enough resources. So for me, this work really comes from, Yes, I want equity in our tax system, of course, um, but it also comes down to what are the policies that we can shift to really try to move the needle uh, to invest in communities. It's funny, Marie Francis, I think often back to the work that I was doing many moons before joining the mass budget team that you were supporting at the time as a program officer at the Himes Foundation, you know, a local community foundation really working at the front lines of social justice. And I'll never forget the first time I had to ask an elected official what their thoughts were on progressive revenue. <laughs> and just, you know, getting a sense of what progressive revenue was at the time seemed so wild and out there. It's like, what is this now? And it's like, oh, I don't want my undercarriage to get torn up by the Tobin Bridge, <laughs> or I actually want to make sure that my my younger sisters have books that aren't falling apart or that they might have, you know, an HVAC system that's working in the middle of a global health and economic crisis. Wow. How are we going to pay for that? It sounds like we have two billion solutions at hand, but it's just to your point, it's just it's it feels more out of reach to most folks because they haven't seen the positive benefits of tax policy. They haven't felt it in their pockets. They haven't seen it in their schools. They haven't seen it in their communities. And we know that wealthy communities often supplement with where they can with their own income. It's like, why not 
why not share the wealth? Like what's, what's a dollar or two between friends or what's four cents on the dollar between friends? You know, mm-hmm. like I'm hoping that as folks listening to this understand that they really have the chance to be a part of that change. All right, then we'll wrap it up. We see that we solved this problem. No, sir. Um, I think that I think the interesting part about about this for me is just the idea that um, it's another way to to address getting some equity and, and some fairness into to people's lives. Like we've seen what happens when things are kind of tilted too far one way or the other, and I think that this seems a, a pretty fair response to to be able to to address address those situations. And I always think that in in the grand scheme of things, like it, it feels like it's more prevention than than anything else. Like if we are paying for better schools or paying for better roads, then you know we're not dealing with the effects of what happens in communities where there aren't better schools and there aren't better roads. So you know what I mean? We don't have to police as much because now people are, you know, they got jobs and they have a more of an investment in the community or like there's a domino effect. And it, it's it, I think is very interesting that that people shy away from something that's preventative. Because this feels very uh, preventative in the grand scheme of of our of social ills. Do you think that this is a, you know, when you're when you're addressing and having the conversation, you said they're business owners on board. What what are some of the things that they said that made them feel um, comfortable to jump on board and be involved? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think when we when we talk to business owners, we're definitely you know, I think we all benefit. Um, from this this fair share world in the future, you know, starting on November 9th, where we have a more educated workforce, right? People are able to study and not take out, you know, huge loans and be in debt. Um, they're able to get really good educations, whether that's a vocational school or like a four-year university at, at, at the public level. We have more reliable transit systems. We have better roads and bridges so people can get to work and their appointments on time. You know, I think it's in for for me at least, obviously, because I'm working on the campaign, it's a really easy sell. You know, a more educated workforce that's better able to get around. Um, it's good, it's good for business, it's good for jobs. And so I think it's been relatively easy for when we talk to folks to get them on board because they they can definitely see they know that they're not bringing home you know, over a million dollars in income, uh, but they know that they will benefit from it, right? And so like a, a, a lion's share was that 97% of businesses won't pay more, right? So most businesses won't won't be impacted by by fair share, even if they, you know, do this thing where they bring the income home, like their personal income, uh, mm-hmm. even at that point, it still doesn't impact most of those folks, right? And so I think it's been, it's been an easy sell as long as we can get our foot in the door. Obviously, businesses are busy they're moving and a lot of the businesses that work with us are are smaller businesses with like five or six or ten or ten people but um, we've gotten people all over the state from a bunch of different industries that serve different demographics it's it's been a really great program that we were able to to implement and and the business um, director is a business owner herself um, you know Curly Adrian is a, a the owner co-owner of uh, Tipping Cow Ice Cream in Austin in Boston and Somerville you know, and they they make great ice cream, you know, they're black owned business, uh, but she can speak to it with her MBA hat, with her business owner hat, um, you know, as a black immigrant woman. And so it's been really great to have have her on the team, too, at her level, uh, being able to to organize uh, the business owners. And, and we've done a lot of really great work with them, you know, looping them into field work, getting them on on um, paid uh, on 
paid media and stuff like that. Um, so it's been a really successful program um, and one that we had to build up knowing that the opposition is going to try to hit um, try to hit everyday voters um, by trying to scare them and make them think that it's going to impact their small mom and pop shop business right when it's really not. So on November 8th, when this when this happens, it goes through, we wake up on on the 9th rather, and this is passed. What are the next steps after that? Yeah, so the next steps after that are, well, we'll also, there are a couple other important things that are on the ballot as well, okay. just to call out. Um, one is a gubernatorial race, so we'll have a new governor um, also, uh, and uh, there are also some other statewide races as well for auditor, um, uh, the for AG. Treasurer, uh, AG, treasurer, AG, lieutenant governor. Um, yep, and there are also three other ballot questions as well. Um, mm -hmm. One having to do with the sale of alcohol, another with dental insurance, and question number four is around um, having safer roads in Massachusetts and ensuring that um, folks who have are undocumented folks in our communities have access to driver's licenses. Uh, so. There, so there are a lot of big questions um, that we really urge people to really get out uh, on November 8th or before November 8th, if you're early voting, mail-in voting, um, to, to really weigh in on. So a lot of things are going to look different uh, as we go into 2023. Um, but essentially, we'll have, you know, if fair share passes, when we commence our budget process, uh, moving into the start of the following year, what typically it kicks off in January, the start of the budget process, the governor proposing mm. their budget and then the legislature weighing in. Uh, but since it's a new governor, it'll be delayed till March. So, okay. um, you know, we have a pretty big state budget. It's about $50 billion that the governor and then uh, legislators go back and forth um, on before it's ultimately signed around the, the summertime, the late summer. Uh, so there'll be plenty of opportunity for people to um, start weighing in on how best to invest all of our public dollars, really. Okay, so basically the next step, the real work kicks in on the 9th. And we've got we to gotta make sure that we're, we don't, you know, just tick that box on, on the 8th and think that it's all over. Hey, it's just going to be raining cash. Like we have to be present after that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's, I don't want to say it's where the real work starts because we don't, we don't even have a chance at that if we don't do work for the next like 30 days, but certainly that's where we get to start. I think to me, the, the exciting part is that's where we get to start dreaming. That's where we get to start having visioning sessions for what we would love the money to go to, which programs and which communities um, within our organizations and unions and all the wonderful for people that we work with so that when budget season comes around in the winter spring and into the summer we're ready to go right like our people are trained up and they're like they're going to march into the governor's office they're going to march into the state house and say you know i want to see money going to my community to these programs um, and that's that's really exciting i mean from an organizing perspective it's like damn do we ever get a day off <laughs> but it's a good problem to have right because we just won something historic the first place in the country to, to do anything like this. And now we get to figure out what we're going to do with it. 
um, and we get to bring all of our people in and be like, this is our, this is an opportunity that we have um, to continue to build power in our communities by educating our folks on, on what a budget process is, right? Like most, most people in our community don't understand the budget process. Um, so we can kind of do like a, a layman's version of that and be able to, to communicate with folks um, and educate them so that we can get them, you know, to the state house, making calls, talking to their, their fellow um, constituents um, about where they want to see that money go. I'm now trying to imagine where, where in my community I could see some of this money go. Right. You know, you know? It, people, the one thing I wanted to add about that is like some very few people who are up to date on this are like, well, what about the budget surplus this year? And it's like, look around your community. Do you see a budget surplus? Right. There's, there's, <laughs> do you That's see a, a budget, great, do you see a budget a great, surplus in your community? Response. Right. When you walk around Dorchester, New Bedford or, or whatever it is that, that our communities live, there's like roads with no sidewalks. There's the, right. Roads have potholes everywhere. There's no public transit or it's like it or it's catching on fire and people are jumping out into the water. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we don't see it here. Um, and we think that we would love to have a lot more money for a long time um, that goes towards our communities and fixing all those things up. Right. Our schools are in district. Like some, a friend of mine works at a, a high school in BPS and they like, don't have AC, like good AC or heating. So their kids are like freezing in the winter and they're like sweating <laughs> in the summer, especially if they have like summer school and stuff like that. Like you said earlier, Reggie, like we're still in a pandemic. There's like another, there's a new strain of COVID like every week we're going into flu season and it's like, they don't have proper HVAC systems in, in all of these schools that are educating folks, right? Like 80% of the the voting population lives in Boston and you know that's where our kids go to school and and those kids aren't like literally aren't in safe conditions right now right and so that that's where i want to see it going right mhm yeah yeah i think the that, list that, is long yeah i was going to say there's i'm sure there's a a bunch of different places i would love to see more investment in in the art sector and over across the state you know what mm -hmm. i mean in uh, equitable an equitable distribution of that. I know that Mass Cultural Council and, and Michael Bobbitt and his team have been really yeah. leaning into that work. He, you know, he's been on the, um, been on with us in the past and they're really leaning into that work. But, and one of the things that, that Mike, um, that he shared with us during the festival this summer was that the arts and, and the arts and entertainment um, sector is the biggest sector in terms of um, economic impact in Massachusetts you know, before sports, before any of the other things that, that we would readily think are the are the places, it's arts. So, I mean, I would love to see a little bit more investment into that, you know, my personal choice. If I could pick, that would be it. You know, the ability for, for us to have that, you know, be a place where people don't feel like they need to, you know, they automatically need to leave, leave in order to, to have a, a, a life as an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I spoke with Michael Bobbitt, we were talking about that, um, then how we really underinvest in arts, then culture and the state budget, for sure. I think for, for me, I recently, um, I was out in Western Mass talking to um, a board member and a former board member and community leaders um, out there, and they were talking to me about childcare vouchers. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they told me a story of a 
woman who uh, had this, you know, a home-based childcare center and that she, she had to close down because the, the amount she was getting for vouchers um, through, you know, the kids that she was taking care of weren't enough to keep um, the doors open basically Mm -hmm. um, for her. And, you know, she had to shudder and, um, you know, the investments, kind of the reimagining we need to do with childcare in Massachusetts is going to be very expensive. We have to definitely center equity, but we have the highest infant care costs in the entire nation as a person with a five-year-old that had to pay for <laughs> childcare um, for most of that time. Um, it's astronomical. So it's something that impacts a lot of people. Well, it sounds like we can find a few places to sit in this morning. A few places. <laughs> I could I could think of a few myself. I'm also thinking back to um, the N.E. Casey's recent uh, Kids Count data book, Marie Francis, where I was talking about just how high, you know, like child depression is in the Commonwealth. And it's like, well, if we had the resources throughout the pandemic and beyond to really fund these programs and to fund the, the supports for socio-emotional learning, to fund, you know, like the creative art sector programs that are often a lot of the foundation for kids to go on to these types of art careers and that Greg just mentioned, it's like, we can't, we can't expect cradle to career greatness if we're not investing throughout that entire life cycle. (laughs) And that takes, that takes money adjusted for inflation, keeping up with Mm -hmm. yesterday's price, not being today's price. Like we need to really meet folks where we're at. And as we always like to say, Marie Francis always says, budgets are moral documents. (laughs) So it's like, put your morality where your mouth is and also make sure that the check reflects that. This is a great opportunity to get us there. Yeah. And to your point, like historically, when we look at like budgets and stuff, like the first thing that people want to cut is like the arts budget, right? That was like a big deal, like under Trump, right? Like his first yeah. budget, they he like cut like any like the funding for for the arts like altogether, and everyone was like, "What are you talking about? You can't do that." And so, I understand that educators want to make sure their kids can read. They want to make sure they can do math and science and stuff. But the arts are super important too. Like you were saying, Greg in ways that even surprised me right like the fact that it's a such a huge like economic boost to the meshes economy is is amazing and and i wouldn't have known that if you hadn't told me that that's definitely like a talking point i'm going to keep in my back pocket but it's like we should definitely be letting kids like have fun and express themselves and um and a lot of the times like our communities are the ones that get their budgets uh slashed the arts budget slashed uh whenever they're underfunded right and so and we're producing like the best artists, you know, across like music and 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 acting and, and all kinds of, of other wonderful things, art, poetry, right? And so all those things are things that like our communities can continue to do like tenfold um, if we have permanent investment in our communities. And I think just something that I wanna I wanna highlight is like, you know, the fairness piece is really important when talking about fair share. Um, people have kind of like a base level understanding of what they think is fair and what they think is right and just uh, and understanding like tax equity and like that rich people pay less and state and local taxes and the rest of us do like that gets people going that that gets me going I'm like all right that that makes me mad I don't think that's fair 
right? They have a lot of money. They've gotten a lot of more, a lot more money during the pandemic than the rest of us have. I think they should be paying their fair share. But I think something that is particularly useful for our communities um, is the investment piece, is that the money will be going to our communities to improve, um, you know, the world that we see around us, um, you know, viscerally. Um, and I think that's where sometimes it take where there's there's some healthy criticism, right? Because our communities haven't always been stood up for, or you know, people haven't always stood with us. Um, and that's where the the sort of movement building piece I think comes in. Cause I th I think that that anger, that righteous anger is totally valid, right? Like, yeah, our communities have been underfunded and that's messed up. Um, but this campaign, and hopefully if we win it, the campaign that comes after it, um, is an opportunity for us to you know, to build power in our communities, to educate our folks, um, to win something that could be really impactful for our communities, and then to go out there and make sure that we get it, right? We talked about this with like the census too, right? And people were like, well, why should I be counted? You know, it does, doesn't matter how much money the state gets, it's not coming to me. Well, it's like, well, if we're all counted, then we get a bigger pie, and then we can go advocate for a larger slice of that pie. That's right. what I think we're talking about with, with fair share is like, we get a permanently lock, we get to supersize the pie and then right. we get to go be like, now I want my fair share. You don't win this thing without me. Right. Cause we have the numbers, right? Like wimp, like, you know, we look at the data, like people of color are holding us down. Women of color in particular are holding us down. Like that's no surprise to, to any of us who do this work. Uh, but those are the people that can come in and be like, look, we don't win fair share without my organization, my base, my vote, et cetera here's what we want. You have those accountability meetings with the state house, right? Those are all things that, that we can do um, once we get to that point, starting on November 9th, moving forward. I'm so glad you brought up the census because, you know, a lot of the one-time <laughs> keywords, one-time <laughs> money that we got in pandemic aid, you know, it's not this big surplus that folks think it is. Like, this is money that is yet to be allocated. It has to be, it has to go somewhere. Like, if we're going to get to a place where we're, allocating these funds and we're not playing uh you know this this like this haves and have nots game around who is getting the resources it's like we really don't have to have this artificial fight <laughs> over where we can make investments we can really do well by the commonwealth by making sure that wealth is common you know for everyone but oh goodness well i'd love to get a sense marie francis and well how folks can stay involved we're coming short on time so how can folks get involved in the next what 20, 26, 27 days or so. By the time this comes out, it might be a little bit closer to election day. How can folks get involved? How can folks share their stories? How can folks really make sure that they're uh, helping fair share get across the finish line? I found this on the web. I think Siri said she wanted to vote yes on one. I'm not quite sure. Uh <laughs> I'll let you take that one. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so definitely the biggest thing right now is helping us uh, knock on doors and make calls, uh, talking to voters, uh, making sure we're getting new voters, making sure we're retaining the folks that um, are part of our universe. Uh, people can sign up. We have a mobilized link, mobilize.us forward slash fair share amendment 2022. Um, we have a couple of, of big events coming up soon that maybe will happen before this podcast goes live, but we have two events this weekend. Saturday, October 15th at 12 p.m. in Worcester with Congressman McGovern, um, and then one on Sunday, October 16th at 2 p.m. in Dorchester uh, with Ayanna Presley. Um, so we have two big events that we're doing 
I'm hoping to use some of our our um, national delegation uh, for a field bump and some earned media. Uh, we're going to be doing events like this. We did an event with Mayor Wu and, and um, JP that was great. Uh, we're going to be doing some events like this, also focused around transportation, uh, highlighting the dilapidated bridges. So shout out to Mass Budget again for that wonderful report that like we use like all the time. Um, so yeah, we're having a bunch of really, really big field events, um, but just in general, if folks can help us make calls um, and knock on doors between now and election day, uh, that would be super, super helpful. Um, and then also we're on social media. So um, at FairShareMA on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're even on TikTok. Um, if folks listening are on social media, please give us a follow and a like. Um, we post a lot of really good content on social media that we would love for folks to help us amplify. It sounds like that's the, the thing that we'll, we'll definitely tap into and be a part of it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today has been super educational for for myself and I'm sure for our listeners, man. We, and we really, really appreciate you all taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Appreciate y'all. Talk to y'all soon. DJ Teddy Ted, play the theme music. <laughs>